Hello and welcome back to Byzantium the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode six of the Second Age of the Crusaders and the subject is the Children's Crusade of 1212. I think this must be one of the strangest episodes in the whole story of the Crusades and it provides a fascinating insight into the medieval mind. As you will shortly hear in 1212, two groups of children, one in France and the other in Germany, were inspired by child preachers to believe that they could liberate Jerusalem by some sort of miracle. They went to the sea and waited for it to part to let them cross the Mediterranean on dry land to go to the Holy Land. But of course, when this didn't happen, they went home. But unfortunately, many of them died on the journey and some did apparently set sail and were then sold into slavery. The whole sorry tale just shows how strong the belief in miracles was in the Middle Ages and also how people wanted to escape from their daily lives and find some religious meaning. Meanwhile, back with the grown-up crusaders after the Fourth Crusade was redirected against Constantinople, there was actually a mutually convenient truce between the crusaders and Al-Adil, who was Saladin's brother and the ruler of Egypt and Syria. Al-Adil favoured the benefits of the trade that the crusaders brought, and he didn't regard them as a serious threat. One reason, I think, that he didn't try to destroy them completely, which he probably could have done since they only controlled the coastal towns, was that he feared it would provoke a larger crusade in retaliation from the West, like the Third Crusade had been, which had been quite a big problem for Saladin. Another reason for Al-Adil to leave the Crusaders alone was a waning interest in the Crusaders in the Holy Land among the feudal lords in Western Europe. This was partly because after the Fourth Crusade, instead of going all the way to the Holy Land, Knights could now travel to Greece and seize land there from the Byzantines. And indeed, the Pope had also blessed a crusade that was actually in southern France against the Albigensian heretics in the Languedoc. And that was a lot easier to get to than travelling across the Mediterranean to the Holy Land. But having said that, the Pope was keen to organise another crusade and the kings of Europe were also keen to go on crusade as a way of showing off their power and prestige. So plans were afoot for a fifth crusade. So, as before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. The failure of the Fourth Crusade to send material help to Palestine was not without its compensations. For over ten years, the little Crusader kingdom was left in peace. The truce that King Amalric had arranged with the Sultan held good. Without Western aid, the Franks could not venture to break it, while Al-Adil was sufficiently busy keeping together his own dominions not to trouble himself over the conquest of a state that was harmless, whereas if he were to attack it, he might well provoke a crusade. For over three years, John of Ebelin was able to rule undisturbed as regent for his niece, Queen Maria. In 1208, the queen reached the age of 17, and it was time to find a husband. An embassy consisting of Florent, Bishop of Acre, and Amar, Lord of Caesarea, was sent to France to ask King Philip to provide a candidate. It was hoped that the offer of a crown would lure some rich and vigorous prince to come to the rescue of the Crusader East. But it was not so easy to find a bridegroom. At last, in the spring of 1210, King Philip announced that a knight from Champagne called John of Brienne had accepted the position. It was a disappointing choice. John was a penniless younger son who had already reached the age of 60. 
His elder brother, Walter, had married King Tancred of Sicily's eldest daughter and had put in an ineffectual claim to the Sicilian throne. But John had spent his life in comparative obscurity as one of the French king's commanders. It was rumoured that he was chosen now because of a love affair with the Countess Blanche of Champagne, which was scandalising the French court. But apart from his poverty, he was not ill-fitted for the post. He had a wide knowledge of international politics, and his age was guaranteed that he would not not embark on rash adventures. To make him more acceptable, King Philip and Pope Innocent each gave him a dowry of 40,000 silver pounds. Meanwhile, until he should arrive, John of Ebling carried on the government of the Crusader Kingdom. In July 1210, the truce with Aladil came to an end and the Sultan sent to Acre to suggest its renewal. John of Ebling presided over a council of which he recommended the acceptance of the offer and he was supported by the Grand Master of the Hospital, Guerin of Montagu and the Grand Master of the Teutonic Knights, Hermann Bart. But the Grand Master of the Temple, Philip of Le Plessier, persuaded the bishops to insist on rejecting the suggestion on the legal ground that the future king should not be bound by any new truce. There was little actual fighting. Aladil sent his son Ulmazam with a few troops to Mount Tabor, and their presence there kept the Crusaders in check. Meanwhile, John of Brienne landed at Acre on the 13th of September 1210. Next day, the Patriarch Albert of Jerusalem married him to Queen Maria, and on the 3rd of October, the royal pair were crowned at Tyre. The new king soon became popular. He showed tact in the handling of his vassals and the military orders, and caution in his dealings with the Muslims. While the court was at Tyre for the coronation, Al-Muzam had raided the suburbs of Acre, but had not ventured to attack the city itself. Early next summer, John allowed some of his vassals to combine with the Templars on an expedition by sea to the Damietta mouth of the Nile, but it was ineffectual. A few months later, he accepted a fresh offer from Aladil to sign a truce for five years, which came into force in July 1212. In the meantime, messages were sent by the king to Rome to ask that a new crusade should be ready to come to Palestine as soon as the five-year truce should expire. The same year, the young queen died after giving birth to a daughter called Isabella after her grandmother but more usually known as Yolanda. Her death made John's judicial position doubtful. He had reigned as the Queen's husband. Now the kingdom had passed to Yolanda and her father had no legal right but he was her father and he was accepted as natural regent of the kingdom at least until she should marry. He continued to govern the country in peace until the coming of the next crusade. To console himself in his widowhood, he married in 1214 the princess Stephanie of Armenia, daughter of Leo II. Meanwhile, back in Rome, ever since his disillusion with the Fourth Crusade, Pope Innocent had been preparing for another expedition to save the East. He had been troubled by many distractions. There had been the difficult problem of the heretics in southern France to solve, and the fierce solution of the Albigensian crusade though he had instigated it and given the Crusaders indulgences similar to those earned by a war against the infidel, had raised difficulties in its turn. In 1211, in an answer to an invasion of Castile by the Arab Almohad vizier An-Nasir, he had preached the Crusade in Spain, and his efforts were justified by the magnificent victory of Las Navas de Tolosa in July 1212, when the African army was routed 
and a new phase of Christian reconquest began in Spain. But there were few knights ready to make the journey to the Holy Land. The only response to the prayers for the rescue of Jerusalem came from a very different class. One day in May 1212, there appeared at Saint-Denis in France, where King Philip of France was holding his court, a shepherd boy of about 12 years old called Stephen from the small town of Cloy in the Orléanais. He brought with him a letter for the king, which he said had been given to him by Christ in person, who had appeared to him as he was tending his sheep and who had bidden him go and preach the crusade. King Philip was not impressed by the child and told him to go home, but Stephen, whose enthusiasm had been fired by his mysterious visitor, saw himself now as an inspired leader who would succeed where his elders had failed. For the past 15 years, preachers have been going around the countryside urging a crusade against the Muslims of the East or of Spain, or against the heretics of Languedoc. It was easy for a hysterical boy to be infected with the idea that he too could be a preacher and could emulate Peter the Hermit, whose prowess had during the past century reached a legendary grandeur. Undismayed by the king's indifference, he began to preach at the very entrance to the Abbey of Saint-Denis and to announce that he would lead a band of children to the rescue of Christendom. The seas would dry up before them and they would pass like Moses through the Red Sea, safe to the Holy Land. He was gifted with an extraordinary eloquence. Older people were impressed and children came flocking to his call. After his first success, he set out to journey around France, summoning the children and many of his converts went further afield to work on his behalf. They were all to meet at Vendôme in about a month's time and start out from there to the east. Towards the end of June, the children did indeed mass at Vendôme. Awed contemporaries spoke of 30,000 of them, not one over 12 years of age. There were certainly several thousand of them and collected from all parts of the country, some of them simple peasants whose parents in many cases had willingly let them go on their great mission, but there were also boys of noble birth who had slipped away from home to join Stephen and his following of minor prophets, as the chroniclers called them. There were also girls amongst them, a few young priests and a few older pilgrims, some drawn by piety, others perhaps from pity, and others certainly to share in the gifts that were showered upon them all. The bands came crowding into the town, each with a leader carrying a copy of the Oriflamme, which Stephen took as the device for the crusade. The town could not contain them all, and they encamped in the fields outside. When the blessing of friendly priests had been given, and when the last parents had been pushed aside, the expedition started out southward. Nearly all of them were on foot, but Stephen, as befitted the leader, insisted on having a brightly decorated cart for himself, with a canopy to shade him from the sun. At his side rode boys of noble birth, each rich enough to possess a horse. No one resented the inspired prophet travelling in comfort. On the contrary, he was treated as a saint, and locks of his hair and pieces of his clothing were collected as precious relics. They took the road past Tours and Lyon, making for Marseille. It was a painful journey. The summer was unusually hot. They depended on charity for their food, and the drought left little to spare in the country countryside, and water was also scarce. Many of the children actually died by the wayside. Others dropped out and tried to wander home. But at last, the little crusade reached Marseille. The citizens of Marseille greeted the children kindly. Many found houses in which to lodge them. Others encamped in the streets, 
Next morning, the whole expedition rushed down to the harbour to see the sea divide before them. When the miracle did not take place, there was bitter disappointment. Some of the children turned against Stephen, crying that he betrayed them and began to retrace their steps. But most of them stayed on by the seaside, each expecting that in the morning God would relent. After a few days, two merchants of Marseille, called according to tradition Hugh the Iron and William the Pig, offered to put ships at their disposal and to carry them free of charge for the glory of God to Palestine. Stephen eagerly accepted the kindly offer. Seven vessels were hired by the merchants, and the children were taken aboard and set out to sea. Eighteen years passed before there was any further news of them. Meanwhile, tales of Stephen's preaching had reached the Rhineland. The children of Germany were not to be outdone. A few weeks after Stephen had started out on his mission, a boy called Nicholas from a Rhineland village began to preach the same message before the shrine of the three kings at Cologne. Like Stephen, he declared that children could do better than grown men and that the sea would open to give them a path. But while the French children were to conquer the Holy Land by force, the Germans were to achieve their aim by the conversion of the infidel. Nicholas, like Peter, had a natural eloquence and was able to find eloquent disciples to carry his preaching further up and down the Rhineland. Within a few weeks, an army of children had gathered at Cologne, ready to start out for Italy in the sea. It seems that the Germans were, on average, slightly older than the French and that there were more girls with them. There was also a larger contingent of boys of the nobility and a number of disreputable vagabonds and prostitutes. The expedition was split into two parties. The first numbering, according to the chroniclers, 20,000, was led by Nicholas himself. It set out up the Rhine and through western Switzerland, past Geneva to cross the Alps by the Montseny Pass. It was an arduous journey for the children and their losses were heavy. Less than a third of the company that left Cologne appeared before the walls of Genoa at the end of August and demanded a night shelter within its walls. The Genoese authorities were ready at first to welcome the pilgrims, but on second thoughts they suspected a German plot. They would allow them to stay for one night only, but any who wished to settle permanently in Genoa were invited to do so. The children, expecting the sea to divide before them next morning, were happy. But the next morning the sea was as impervious to their prayers as it had been to the French at Marseille. In their disillusion, many of the children at once accepted the Genoese offer and became Genoese citizens forgetting their pilgrimage. Several great families of Genoa later claimed to be descended from this immigration. But Nicholas and the greater number moved on. The sea would open for them elsewhere. A few days later, they reached Pisa. There, two ships bound for Palestine agreed to take several of the children who embarked and who perhaps reached Palestine, but nothing is known of their fate. Nicholas, however, still awaited a miracle and trudged on with his faithful followers all the way to Rome. At Rome, Pope Innocent received them. He was moved by their piety, but embarrassed by their folly. With kindly firmness, he told them that they must now go home. When they grew up, they should then fulfil their vows and go to fight for the cross. Little is known of the return journey. Many of the children, especially the girls, could not face again the ardours of the road and stay behind in some Italian town or village. Only a few stragglers found their way back next spring to the Rhineland. Nicholas was probably not amongst them. But the angry parents
parents whose children had perished insisted on the arrest of his father, who had, it seemed, encouraged the boy out of vanity. He was taken out and hanged. The second company of German pilgrims was no more fortunate. It had travelled to Italy through central Switzerland and over the St. Gotthard Mountains, and after great hardships reached the sea at Ancona. When the sea failed to divide for them, they moved slowly down the east coast as far as Brindisi. There a few of them found ships sailing to Palestine and were given passages, but the others returned and began to wander slowly back home. Only a tiny number returned at last to their homes. Despite their miseries, they were perhaps luckier than the French. In the year 1230, a priest arrived in France from the east with a curious tale to tell. He had been, he said, one of the young priests who had accompanied Stephen to Marseille and had embarked with them on the ships provided by the merchants. A few days out, they had run into bad weather and two of the ships were wrecked on the island of San Pietro, off the southwest corner of Sardinia, and all the passengers were drowned. The five ships that survived the storm found themselves soon afterwards surrounded by a Saracen squadron from Africa, and the passengers learnt that they had been brought there by arrangement to be sold into captivity. They were all taken to Bougie on the Algerian coast. Many of them were bought on their arrival and spent the rest of their lives in captivity there. Others, the young priest amongst them, were shipped onto Egypt, where Frankish slaves fetched a better price. When they arrived at Alexandria, the greater part of the consignment was bought by the governor to work on his estates. According to the priest, there were still about 700 of them living. A small company was taken to the slave markets of Baghdad, and there 18 of them were martyred for refusing to accept Islam. More fortunate were the young priest and the few others that were literate. The governor of Egypt, Al-Adil's son, Al-Kamil, was interested in Western languages and letters. He bought them and kept them with him as interpreters, teachers and secretaries and made no attempt to convert them to Islam. They stayed on in Cairo in a comfortable captivity and eventually this one priest was released and allowed to return to France. He told the questioning parents of his comrades all that he knew then disappeared into obscurity. A later story identified the two wicked merchants of Marseille with two merchants who were hanged a few years afterwards for attempting to kidnap the German Emperor Frederick on behalf of the Saracens, thus making them in the end pay the penalty for their crimes. But it was not the little children that would rescue Jerusalem. Pope Innocent had larger and more realistic views. He decided to hold a great council of the church at Rome in 1215, where all the religious affairs of Christendom could be regulated and above all the Byzantine church should be integrated. At the first session the Pope himself spoke on the plight of Jerusalem and the Patriarch of Jerusalem rose to plead for help. The council hastened to reaffirm the privileges and indulgences to be accorded to crusaders and to arrange for the financing of the expedition which was to assemble in Sicily or Apulia and set sail for the east on the 1st of June 1217. The council stirred the church into activity throughout the spring of 1216, preachers set out all over Western Christendom as far afield as Ireland and Scandinavia. The doctors of the University of Paris declared that anyone who took the cross and then tried to avoid the fulfilment of their vow committed a mortal sin. Popular visions were reported of crosses floating in the air and this added to a growing religious frenzy. Innocent was hopeful. He wrote to the Sultan al warning him of the wrath to come and urging him to give up Jerusalem 
Jerusalem peacefully while there was still time. The way was now open for the Fifth Crusade. that ends this episode hope you enjoyed it and if you want to leave any ratings or reviews especially on apple Podcasts, you'd be doing me a really massive favor thank you so much and in the next episode we'll hear about the fifth crusade <laughs>